actually today I'm, I'm, I'm teaching, there's a theme almost all the way through the 18th chapter of Luke on trust. Uh, about every uh, parable and situation that Jesus addresses, talks about trust. So I've, I've titled the, the message. And um, it's, it's interesting this time of year. Uh, uh, 50 years ago, shortly after midnight tonight, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And uh, I remember the date for this reason. Two or three weeks after that I got saved, I was visiting a friend's church, and the pastor said, if you don't remember the date that you got saved, then you're not saved. So I was petrified, so I ran home and got the calendar out and found out what the date was, so I never forgot it. I have trusted the Lord for 50 years, and there's certainly times that I, I failed. And as we were singing, All I Am Is Yours, there just a few minutes ago. So many times we fail because we don't give him our failures. We don't give him our shame. We don't give him the messes we make. And we hold on to that. And that, that taints us. And so uh, if we're going to trust God with everything, we just have to be bold-faced and open before the Lord. One of my favorite verses in the book of Hebrews, it says, uh, we are naked and exposed to the one that we must give account. Now, that's a reality. And so if, if we really understand that, then we might as well just be wide open and, and stop pretending because not all of us are as good as we would like to be. Not all of us are as shameless as we would like to be. But the good news is God delivers us from shame, and that's an awesome And so uh, I'm going to start with the 19th uh, chapter, just a few verses there. Um, because this is such, a, such an important passage, and it also has to deal with trust. Uh, I'm going to begin reading with verse 11. Who do you trust? As they were listening to this, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. I'm reading from the, uh, the Christian Standard Bible, which... It's a fairly new translation. I really enjoy it very much. Verse 12, therefore he said, a nobleman traveled to a far country. Now this is talking about Jesus. And this is specifically a message to the Jews, but it's for all of us. Um, but the specifics are uh, to, to the Jews. A nobleman traveled to a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, or another translation says, or to receive for himself authority to be a king. Uh, he was named King of Kings and Lord of Lords after he went to the cross. Um, and then to return, he called ten of his servants, gave them ten minas. I thought it was pronounced minas, but it's minas. Now, ten minas is a hundred days' wages. So he gave a total of ten minas to ten servants. So each servant got one mina each. And he told them, engage in business. Or one translation says, do my business until I come back. So Jesus is this uh, nobleman. He's traveling to a far country. He's leaving, and then however many years later, he's coming back, and, and he's going to ask for account 
of what he's given. But his subjects hated him, <laughs> and they sent a delegation after him, saying, we don't want this man to rule over us. And then verse 15, at, at his return, having received the authority to be king, he summoned those servants he had given the money to so that he could find out how much they had made in business. The first came forward and said, Master, your mina has earned ten more minas. Well done, good servant, he told him, because you've been faithful in a very small matter. Have authority over ten towns. The second came and said, Master, your mina has made five minas. So he said to him, you will be over five towns. And another came and said, Master, here is your mina. I have kept it safe in a cloth because I was afraid of you since you're a harsh man. You collect what you didn't deposit and reap what you didn't sow. He told him, I will condemn you by what you've said, you evil servant. If you knew I was a harsh man, now all of this is a question, it's not a statement. If you knew I was a harsh man, collecting what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow, why then didn't you put my money in the bank? You know, the big problem here is that he did not accurately estimate this nobleman. He did not accurately understand the Lord. We do not have an austere, harsh Lord, and we need to understand that. And so when, when I returned, I have collected it with, he said, if you had put it in the bank, then when I would have returned, I would have collected it with interest. So he said to those standing there, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. Now these others thought it was very unfair. They said, but they, but they said, master, he has 10 minas. And the, Jesus says something very significant for all of us. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. And from the one who does not have, even what he does have will be taken away. And so we're going to see this, what the true haves and have-nots are. The one who has is anyone who did God's business with what God gave them and increased. The increase is what puts them in the category of the haves. In other words, if all I have is what Jesus gave me, and I've not put it into investment, I've not exercised it, then I really don't have anything, because that's the story here. And then the one who has not is anyone who didn't do God's business with what he gave them, and only held on to it without increase. No increase puts them in the category of have-nots. So all of us are given things. Uh, we're given gifts. And, and the thing that's amazing about God's blessedness and gifting in our life and His grace upon us, if we don't begin to exercise that, then the door never opens into the more that God has for us. The strength, uh, the courage, uh, the, uh, the giftedness increases as we begin to exercise it. The have-not in this parable trusted the mina that the Lord gave him, and he was risk-averse to gaining more. Many times people don't gain because they get satisfied with what they've got. They're risk-averse to increase. And if they 
And if they release what they have, then there's a fear there because they're putting their trust in what they have. And that's a very dangerous thing. Now let's go back to Luke chapter 18. And I'll ask the question again, who do you trust? We're going to look at um, the importunate or persistent widow. We're going to look at the Pharisee and the publican. We're going to look at the children that were brought to Christ. We're going to look at a ruler that would, uh, would follow Christ but is hindered by his riches. And uh, then we're going to look at those uh, that have a reward that leave all for his sake. And each of these reveals where our trust is. And each of these shows a risk in trusting God. There's a natural risk in trusting God. Uh, Paul was talking about tithing and giving. You know, the reality about tithing or giving, uh, let's put it this way. If I have $100, if, if my income is $100, and I give 10% of that to the church, to the Lord, then in that moment, I have less than I had. I have less. And so that's where the fear comes for people when it comes to finances. To give, to give money when I have 100 and I'm going to give and now I've only got 90, that scares people. But it's like a farmer. If a farmer has a bunch of seeds, they're not going to do him any good in the barn. They've got to get in the, in, in the ground. And so that's the way it is with everything. When we begin to exercise our faith in the Lord, when we begin to give unto the Lord, whatever it is, then the increase comes. It doesn't always come immediately, but it comes. Now, Spurgeon said something that's very important. We cannot trust God too much. And we cannot have too little self-trust. We cannot trust God too much. It's impossible to trust Him too much. But boy, I can trust me too much. I get in danger when I'm trusting me. See, the Bible's not a message of self-confidence. It's a message of God-confidence. The word trust means to rely upon, to have confidence in, to be yielded to. To rely upon, to have confidence in, to be yielded to. And faith, there's many definitions of faith, but this struck me. Belief with the predominant idea of trust or confidence, whether in God or in Christ, springing from faith in the same the word faith and the word confidence, excuse me, the word faith and the word trust, in essence, are interchangeable. Actually, the word trust is more of an Old Testament word. The word trust is found 107 times in the Old Testament, only 18 times in the New Testament. The word faith is found in the New Testament 227 times, only twice. Only twice in the Old Testament. The word faith is only there twice. And then let's, let's read this story of the importunate or persistent widow. In verse 1, he told them a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. Does that remind you of another verse in the New Testament? It's not related to prayer, but it's about persistence. Anybody think of a verse? That's good. I hadn't thought of that one. But, it, but in Galatians 6, 
uh, says, don't be, don't give up. Don't get weary while doing good for in due season, you will reap if you don't faint. And so this, this story is about a woman, uh, who was persistent. And Jesus said, this is a parable on the need to pray. He said for them to pray and the them is us today and to pray always and not give up, to pray always and not give up. There was a judge in a certain town who did not fear God or respect people. He was not a good judge. And a widow in that town kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he was unwilling, but later he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or respect people, yet because this widow keeps pestering me, I will give her justice so that she doesn't wear me out by her persistent coming. Now, I want to tell you, this is an unjust judge. He doesn't fear God. He doesn't respect people. Is that the way our father is? No, of course it isn't. Of course, of course it isn't. But Jesus said, listen to what the unjust judge says. The unjust judge, even in his evil, because the lady persisted and was pestering him, he turned. But then Jesus said, will not God grant God, judge justice to his elect or answer his elect who cry out to him day and night? Will he delay helping them? I tell you, he will swiftly grant them justice or he will swiftly answer them. And so here, a lot of people, I've heard people teach this. and They've actually tried to relate this whole thing that, man, you've, you've got to keep pestering God. But that's not the story. Prayer is more for our benefit than it is for anybody else's benefit. And prayer is not just a matter of asking what we want. Uh, Jesus said at the beginning of, the, of this, he said it's, it's, he got, he's telling a parable on the need for them to pray always and not give up. That includes every possible type of prayer. You know, there's a lot of things that we pray for. We, we continually go before the Lord. This is, Lord, something we need. We've been doing that concerning a venue. And it's not unbelief that we go back and say it's something that we focus on. We get our hearts set on that, not because it's an idol, but because that's what God wants us to, excuse me, to have. And so God said that he will, answer, Jesus said they will answer him speedily. And then verse 8 is something that's very significant. He said I will, I, I, that he will swiftly grant them justice or answer them. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? The Amplified Bible is very good in this. He said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find this kind of persistent faith on the earth? Our faith needs to be persistent. Uh, Abraham was given a promise when, when Abraham was very old and his wife was very old and her womb was dead. He gave him a promise of a son, the fruit of his loins. And for 24 years, he did not see the fruit of that. It took 24 years. Now, Abraham did some missteps along the way there. But the reality is, is that promises come. And Noah was given a promise that God was going to send a flood of judgment. And Noah persisted for many, many decades of building an ark. 
And so persistence in prayer is not so that we can twist God's arm or persuade him of what we need. God knows what I need even before I ask. But it's a matter of getting me engaged with God so that I am open to receive what he has for me. Many times when I pray, I'm not ready to receive what God has for me. But it's the persistence with God, almost wrestling with God in this whole thing to where we, avail, we make ourselves ready. We should be persistent in all kinds of praying. We're all familiar with 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. Pray constantly or pray without ceasing. It doesn't mean you pray 24 hours a day, but it means that your heart is ever towards the Lord because you trust the Lord. Our faith is in the Lord. We trust Him. And then verse 9, he told another parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. My guess is he was telling this parable to the Pharisees. So this is a parable for those who trust in themselves. First of all, all of us can qualify from time to time. We can trust in ourselves. We can look down on others. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The tax collector were the scum of the earth in those days. The, the, the Pharisees hated the tax collectors. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. I like that translation. He was standing and praying like this about himself. His focus in prayer was off. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. Well, the focus of this prayer that this Pharisee prayed is self-righteousness and condescension toward others. He primarily justified himself on the basis of what he, in his self-estimation, was not doing. Not greedy, not unrighteous, not committing adultery. In other words, he had the wrong estimation of himself. It's like many today saying, I'm a Christian because I don't do this, I don't do that. But that's, that's the wrong basis of understanding our standing with God. Many Christians today said, I'm not that bad, but is that good enough? Or they say, I'm better than most, but have you considered most? Christ only died for one category. And Romans 5, 6 nails it. Christ died for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. And we all qualified. We all qualified. The morally good without Christ are as guilty before God as the reprobates without Christ are. The person who is benevolent, a philanthropist, uh, the person who, is, uh, who, who would never think about adultery, a person who would never think about you know, skimming any amount of money, but if he doesn't know Christ, he's as guilty as the person who is a thief and a robber. And that's something that many times in the church, we, we substitute moralism 
for the gospel. And it's not the same thing. Matter of fact, moralism is counter the gospel. We believe in morality, but moralism is not what we preach. The moral, okay, self-justification does not justify us before God. And, and that's rampant among people, self-justification. They compare themselves to others. But the tax collector, okay, that was the Pharisee, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven. But he kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me. He literally said, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you this, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, first, Jesus said, he went down to his house justified. There was no self-justification. He wouldn't even raise his eyes to God. He was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Pharisee had looked down on this man and said, I thank you, Lord, I'm not like this Pharisee. But the Pharisee had the right perspective. He knew he was guilty before God. And Jesus said, he went down to his house justified. And Jesus says something very significant. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-trust leads to self-exaltation. Self-trust leads to self-exaltation. If I trust myself, then eventually I'll be puffed up and I'll exalt myself. But Jesus said, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Trusting God is an indicator of humility. If I trust God, that indicates humility. With God, the way up is down. You want to go up with God? Humble yourself. God determines how high we go by how low we're willing to go. And Jesus sets that example in the second chapter of Philippians. Uh, even though he was equal with God, he did not hold on to that equality with God firmly. But he emptied himself. He made himself of no reputation. And he took upon himself the form of a servant. And because of that, God highly exalted him and gave him a name above every name. Being humble doesn't mean we think less of ourselves. It means we think of ourselves less. We take ourselves from the equation. It means we take our lives and our status out of our hands and put them in God's hands. That's what humility does. And then verse 15, uh, excuse me. Uh, yeah, verse 15 through 17, I think. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. Before I say that, let me just, let me reiterate. We're looking here at this tax collector. His trust was towards God. The Pharisee, his trust was towards self. So the question today is, who do you trust? 
People were bringing infants in verse 15. People were bringing infants to him so that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Jesus, however, invited them. Let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. A little child trusts what they're told and they receive what's given to them. Jesus said, if you don't receive the kingdom like a little child, you'll never enter. Well, a little child trusts what they're told. You know, you could get a child to climb up on a six-foot wall, the daddy could, and the daddy could say, jump. Well, that wouldn't, that wouldn't even be over your head. Ten-foot wall. <laughs> And the daddy would say, jump. And what would that child do? That child would jump. Why? Because he trusts his daddy. A little child trusts what they're told, and they receive what's given to them. The older we get, though, the more skeptical, skeptical we are. We think that children must grow to become like us before they're eligible for the kingdom. No, we must grow down to become like them in simplicity in humility and trust and faith. We have to become like a little child. And, and I think really this is one of the reasons, you know, why so many people when they see kids or even teenagers beginning to embrace the things of the kingdom, they resent that. They want to push that away. That's the way the disciples were. I mean, take courage. Jesus had a bunch of rascals following him. And he had to shape them and then get them filled with the Holy Spirit. And then verses 18 through 23. Once again, trust. Trust was the theme in that. Verses 18 through 23. A ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' reply shocks a lot of people. He said, why do you call me good? Jesus asked him, no one is good except God alone. Jesus was not speaking in his divinity. He was speaking in his humanity. Jesus didn't take any credit. John 5, verse 19, and John 5, 30, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that by himself he could do nothing. He would not take the credit for anything that he did. Uh, he said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God the Father. You know the commandments. This is this rich young ruler. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And yet Jesus is not trying to tell him that if you keep the commandments, you will inherit eternal life. Jesus is after something deeper in him. Jesus sees the stronghold in this young man's life. He said, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And here we see self-trust again. This rich young ruler says, I've kept all these from my youth. And I believe he was sincere, but I believe he was sincerely wrong. When Jesus heard this, he told him, you still like one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And then come, follow me. And after he heard this, he became extremely sad because he was very rich. This rich young ruler was just like that Pharisee. 
self-focus, and self-trust. You know, I believe he sincerely thought he'd kept the law. But Jesus said, and I think maybe Paul said it too, if you violate in one, you're guilty of all. And Jesus raised the bar. He didn't lower the bar. Uh, when it comes to adultery, uh, Jesus, Jesus raised the bar and said, if you even look on somebody and lust after them, you've committed adultery in your heart. And so uh, this man was focused on his goodness, on what he perceived was his goodness, his self-perception, his self-focus, his self-trust. But Jesus saw the main issue of his life was misplaced trust. This man had trust in riches. Jesus wasn't saying to him that wasn't saying to him, if you'll give everything away, then you can go to heaven. That wasn't what he was saying. He said, if you will distribute what you have to the poor and then come follow me, you'll have treasure in heaven. But the man could not release where his trust was. It was what was keeping him from the eternal life he so desired. And then let's look, look at verses 24 through 29. Seeing that, he became sad. Excuse me. Seeing that he became sad, Jesus said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says one of the most astonishing things. He said, It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is Nita's favorite sermon of mine. It is easier for a camel. I don't think it is. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You know any rich people that are believers? I do. I have several friends that are in that category of rich, and they have entered the kingdom of God. So Jesus is not disqualifying people by what they have, by their possessions. He's disqualifying people by what possesses them. You could be a gazillionaire and not be attached to it. But he said it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples said, then who can be saved? He replied, what's impossible with man is possible with God. And that's really the key in understanding this. Because Jesus is talking about impossibilities. Can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Not without significant change. Because he's talking about what's impossible with man is possible with God. With God, it's possible for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. I'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> Peter said, look, we have left all. What we have left what we had and we followed you. That's a statement of trust. They did leave. They left father. They left boat. The fishermen did. Uh, Matthew, the tax collector, Jesus said, follow me. And it says that before even Matthew rose up, it says he left all. He left all while he was sitting down. It says he left all, he rose up, and he followed Jesus. And so Jesus himself said, you cannot be my disciple in you unless you forsake everything, unless you turn your back on it. Don't let it control you is what he's talking about. He said, we've left what we had and followed you. And Jesus said in verse 29, he said to them, truly I tell you, there is no one 
There is no one who's left a house, a wife, brothers or sisters, parents or children because of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more at this time an eternal life in the age to come. And, and, and this is such a statement of trust. Where is our trust? Can we trust houses? No. We can't trust houses. Uh, we can't trust relationships. But if we'll forsake for the sake of God, not forsaking for the sake of forsaking, but when God speaks, we obey God. And we receive many times more in this life. It doesn't happen immediately. There's a cost. There's a risk. You go without many times. Jesus himself left heaven. I mean, how, how blissful is heaven? He stepped into the sin-ridden world. And he was a man who did not have a place to lay his head. And he did it for the Father. That's the example. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Is Jesus talking about a real camel going through the eye of a real needle? I think he is because he's talking about what's impossible with man is possible with God. For a camel to go through the eye of a needle will require, will require fundamental change in the camel. Turn the camel liquid and you can drop by drop that camel through the eye of a needle one drop at a time. That's impossible with man. It's possible with God. For a rich man to enter the kingdom of God will require a fundamental change in that rich man's perspective of wealth. In other words, he cannot get into the kingdom bound up with riches. He must shift his trust from wealth to God. And really, in everything we've looked at today, it's a matter of shifting trust. Who do you trust? Do you trust you? Do you trust your job? I mean, you know, it's funny. The, you know, the stock market is an amazing thing. I remember reading about 12 years ago. I think it was probably during the, or sub, sub right after the uh, sub sub subprime mortgage crash. I read an article by a, a, a stock market guru, and and it was so definitive. He said. If you'll understand this, you'll never get concerned. He said, the stock market goes up by greed, and it comes down by fear. <laughs> and it's the truth. Where's our trust? Our trust has to be in the Lord. But it's not just a blanket statement. What we sang earlier, whatever he says, we'll do it. That's where trust happens. When you hear God and do what he says, that's where trust is manifested. And when we do that, then we're off the hook and he's on the hook because he, he loves us and he's interested in our good. And it's okay that we have to go through lean times. It's okay that we have to go through situations. I can think back many years ago as a young Christian where because, I mean, I loved God, but because I feared lack so much that I made missteps concerning finances. And it was because of a lack of trust in God to get me through those situations. And so we, we have to understand that God really wants our trust. He wants our faith. And we can trust the Lord. We can put our faith in Him.
because he's the only one really that we can trust. Many years ago, I did a study on the word trust. And, and you know, there's so many verses about not trusting. He says, don't tr trust your friend. Don't trust your neighbor. And, and there's two verses that talks about people we can trust. One is the husband of the virtuous woman. It says that he can confidently trust in her. And I don't remember the other one. <laughs> it's been a long time since I studied that. But the Bible is not rich on trusting people. You've experienced mistrust. I've experienced mistrust. People promise things. Many times they don't deliver. But you have to put your trust in the Lord. He's the one who made heaven and earth. Some trust in chariots, some in horses. We remember the name of the Lord of our God. We will trust in the one who made heaven and earth. And if he did that, he is absolutely able to do whatever is necessary.